Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Fans First Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. This is Kevin Smith, podcast host here at the Fans First Sports Network, contributor to the Steel Curtain Network, and head football coach of the Ocean City Red Raiders in Ocean City, New Jersey. Glad to be with you for what is episode 36 of our podcast, The Call Sheet, which focuses on current NFL news and trends and tries to take a coaching perspective on the game. We will do so in this particular episode, in part two, when we take a deep dive on the RPO, the run pass option, that'll be sort of our coaching segment in this week's show. And there's a reason why we're going to talk about RPOs, which I'll get to. And that reason has a lot to do with the Indianapolis Colts who are playing some really good football. And we're going to jump in on them a little bit later. But as we always do, we're going to start the show by doing a tribute to a player who wore the number of the episode and this is episode 36 and that makes it a special one for me as a lifelong Pittsburgh Steeler fan I try not to be too Steeler centric in this podcast because it is an NFL show but when we land on certain numbers I'm going to tell you right now there's three numbers that are going to jump out that are going to be numbers that we profile Pittsburgh Steelers my three favorite Pittsburgh Steelers of all time and one of those is number 36, Jerome Bettis, the bus. I'll I'll tell you honestly, I don't know if there's a younger Steeler fan out there who who doesn't love Jerome Bettis. I don't know if I've ever heard any Steeler fan talk badly about Jerome Bettis. He had such an impact on this franchise when he arrived in Pittsburgh in 1995, a Steelers team that was really just starting to emerge again as a contender after struggling at times for much of the previous decade or so. And and he was just a perfect fit for the the city. Sometimes the right guy lands in the right place. And the marriage of Jerome Bettis and the Pittsburgh Steelers was about as good as it could get. A guy with a a, a football style of of a downhill smash-mouth runner that fit a tough town who liked its football players to play tough on the field. And so it's interesting how how Bettis arrived in in Pittsburgh. He was drafted out of Notre Dame in the first round in 1993 by the then Los Angeles Rams. Had a great rookie season, rushed for 
over 1,600 yards, was a first-team All-Pro and, and Rookie of the Year. But the next year, the Rams moved to St. Louis. And when they did, they hired Rich Brooks, previously of the Oregon Ducks in, in the NCAA, as their head coach. And Rich Brooks was kind of a, a spread guy when the spread game was just starting to emerge. And he really wanted to throw the football. And he lessened Jerome Bettis's role in the offense. Basically, Jerome Bettis was a square piece in Rich Brooks's round hole of an offense. And so in 1995, in the offseason, the Rams traded Bettis to the Steelers for a third-round pick, which incidentally the Rams used on a running back named Gerald Moore. For those of you who really know your history, Gerald Moore played four years in the league had 705 total rushing yards. Uh, Jerome Bettis did a little bit better than that. He went on in Pittsburgh to gain over 10,000 yards with the Steelers alone, over 13,000 for his career, ended that career with a Super Bowl win in Super Bowl 40 in his hometown of Detroit. Heck of a walk-off for Jerome Bettis and would end up being elected to the Hall of Fame. I'll, I'll share quickly with you three Jerome Bettis moments that jump out for me. My three maybe maybe my three favorite Jerome Bettis moments as a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. And none of them involve him trucking Brian Erlacher at the goal line in the snow in 2005, although that's a good one. Well, I'll start with this. 2001, Pittsburgh at Tampa Bay in a game where the Buccaneers had made an awful lot of noise about how, how great their defense was. And it was great. They would go on to win a Super Bowl with that defense in 2002. But in 2001, the Steelers go down to Tampa Bay and Jerome Bettis really runs all over that vaunted Tampa defense, 143 yards rushing, including a 46-yard touchdown run where he breaks a couple tackles at the line and then runs away from, if you can believe this, Derek Brooks. He, he actually throws a touchdown pass in that game as well, throws it to, the, to tight end Jeremy Tooman. And after that game, Steelers safety Lathan Flowers crowns the Buccaneers paper champions. That's a, that's a quote that Holds a, holds a famous place in the, in the uh, memories of Steeler fans as he goes on to, to call them paper champions. But that was one of those games where just Jerome Bettis was the best player on the field against a really good defense, and you got an appreciation for just how great he was. And then there's the 2004 Halloween night game where the Steelers beat the New England Patriots 34-20. to One of the few Steeler wins over a Tom Brady Patriots team and Jerome Bettis, 150 yards uh, approximately rushing that night, a couple of touchdowns, a couple of signature runs where he put his shoulder into the linebackers and ran through them. The, uh, a Heinz Field crowd that was about as jacked up as I, I've ever seen it. And that was a great night as the Steelers were uh, in the first year of the Ben Roethlisberger era. I remember that night really well because I was moving and we had sold our house and the house we were moving into, we didn't have settlement on it for another week. So we'd gotten a, a rental property and it was late October at the beach in Ocean City. And you could get rental properties right on the beach at that time for really cheap. And so for about $400 for the week, we wound up getting a really nice house on the beach. And I remember, you know, my son was very, very little, my oldest son, and we were getting him ready for Halloween, watching the Steelers game. On a, on a TV on the deck looking out over the beach. It was just a beautiful environment, and, uh, and the Steelers slammed the Patriots that night, and that was a wonderful memory. But maybe my, my, my most 
crystal clear Jerome Bettis memory is not a good one. I mean, it turned out okay, but all Steelers fans will remember what might, what could possibly have been Jerome Bettis's final carry in the NFL in the 2005 divisional playoff game at Indianapolis, where the Steelers upset the Colts 21 to 18, the Peyton Manning led Colts. And the Steelers are going in to score a touchdown that's going to put the game away. It's 21-18 with just over a minute to go. They have to run the ball. They can't take a knee because Indianapolis has all their timeouts left. And they hand the ball with the ball on the one-yard line going in for for the touchdown that will salt the game away. They give the ball to Jerome Bettis, and he gets popped by a Colts linebacker. Can't remember which linebacker it was. He was an excellent linebacker in Indy. Uh, right, right before he crosses the goal line, and that ball pops straight up into the air, and one of the Colts' defensive backs plucks it off the ground and heads the other way. And the only thing between him and a gut-punching loss, most likely for the Steelers, is Ben Roethlisberger, who somehow, in one of the greatest plays of Ben Roethlisberger's career, as the as the defensive back cuts and then cuts back and cuts again, Roethlisberger somehow stays with him, lunges at him at around the 30-yard line, and just manages to trip him up uh, by the shoe. Indianapolis drives down into field goal range, and then on the last play of the game, kicker Mike Vanderjat shanks the field goal, and the Steelers win the game, go on to win the AFC Championship, and win Super Bowl 40 over the Seattle Seahawks. But if the Colts run that thing back for a touchdown and the Steelers lose, Jerome Bess is probably going to retire he wound up retiring after that Super Bowl win. So he's probably going to retire. And that's probably going to be the last carry of his vaunted NFL career. So it's amazing how differently the narrative becomes, right? As opposed, rather than have his last carry be a gut punch uh, fumble in a, in a playoff game that leads to a crushing Steelers loss, it's a walk-off Super Bowl win in his hometown. All because Ben Roethlisberger just got enough of the shoe of that Colts defender to, to trip him up. So Jerome Bettis, the bus number 36, one of my absolute all-time favorite Pittsburgh Steelers. It's great to remember him uh, as we do our, our count up, so to speak, of famous players to where the episodes, uh, the number, I should say, of the episode of the call sheet. All right, so moving away from Jerome Bettis, let's talk, let's do a segment I haven't done in a while. Earlier in the season, I did this and I haven't come back to it. And I think I, I think we'll We'll look at it now and then maybe revisit it as we head to the playoffs. It's a segment that I called Three Up, Three Down. Uh, and in Three Up, Three Down, we're going to look at three teams that are that are on their way up or are rising uh, in the league and three that are on the way down and do a, a quick explanation of why for each one. We're actually going to start with the three down today. There's a reason for that, which I'll get to in a minute. All right, three down. Well, this is going to be a bad segment for Pennsylvania teams. And, and Steelers fans, we just talked about Bettis. So let's just get it out of the way. The Steelers are unquestionably on their way down. They've lost four out of their last five. Two out of the two of those losses were to then two win teams, the Cardinals and the Patriots, both at home, both of which had they won, or even one of which had they won, they would still be in the thick of the playoff race. Now, after losing all, their third straight last Saturday in Indianapolis, the Steelers are are really on the edge of the playoff race. They've got to win all three, their last three, and get some help to get in. Obviously, it doesn't look very good for them. More so than the, than the immediate problems the Steelers are having, they're having bigger problems with their, their team culture, 
the the injuries they have, the questions they have at the quarterback position, the questions that they have on their coaching staff. It's really a, a dark moment, maybe the darkest moment in Mike Tomlin's coaching career as the head coach of the Steelers. You can think back to some times when the Steelers struggled. If you go back uh, to the mid two thousands, they were they were uh, five and eight heading into the last three games of the of the season. They they rallied to win those last three. That didn't look like a very good Steelers team. But Ben Roethlisberger was the quarterback, and you always felt like with Roethlisberger at quarterback, the Steelers would be in the mix. That's not the case right now. Kenny Pickett has struggled. Mitchell Trubisky was awful. They're going to start Mason Rudolph at home on on Saturday night against the Bengals, their third quarterback. Uh, it just looks like they don't have an answer at the quarterback position right now, and more so, they don't have an answer on the offensive staff. And so there's a lot of questions that surround the Pittsburgh Steelers right now, a lot they have to get right between now and when they become irrelevant, or in order, I should say, to become a relevant football team again. Across the state in Philadelphia, it's not very good either. The, the Eagles have lost three in a row, including a bad Monday night loss out in Seattle where they gave up a 92-yard game-winning drive to Drew Locke, who took the Seahawks practically the entire length of the field to score the final couple minutes. Now, there's the, the previous losses the Eagles had suffered, I mean, there was no shame in those. They lost at Dallas. Uh, they lost to San Francisco. They're coming out of a stretch where they played maybe the most brutal stretch of games in the NFL all season long. They played Dallas, Buffalo, Kansas City. San Francisco and Dallas again. That's a brutal stretch. And then they had to fly all the way across the country out to Seattle. Um, so it's understood if the Eagles are in a little bit of a tailspin. Uh, they end their they end their season with two games against the Giants and a game against the Cardinals. So they got a chance to get right before the playoffs start. But right now the Eagles are really struggling. Jalen Hurts is banged up, not playing his best football. The defense has serious issues at the linebacker and safety positions. And after their Monday night loss to Seattle, Jalen Hurts made some comments to the media about how he just didn't feel as though some of his teammates were committed enough, that the execution was poor and it was a reflection of the commitment. And so now when you have the quarterback publicly calling out his teammates, maybe you have a little bit of a rupture in the locker room. The Eagles are either going to have their sort of kumbaya moment where they all come together uh, or it's going to spiral out of control, one or the other, and they're going to be an early playoff, uh, make an early playoff exit. So we shall see. These next three weeks will be crucial for Philly. Uh, finally, in our three down, the, the Washington Commanders, they have mailed in this season. At one point, the Commanders were four and five, and, and they had clawed their way back into the playoff race after deciding that Sam Howe would be their, their quarterback and it looked like they could make a run to the playoffs. But then, curiously, as they were sort of in the midst of, of you know, gaining respectability again, they started to unload talent, especially on the defensive side of the ball, trading star defensive lineman Chase Young to the 49ers. They traded Montez Sweat to the Bears. And the wheels have come off since then. They've lost five in a row. The, I mean, Ron Rivera is a dead man walking from a, from a head coaching perspective in Washington. His job is all but over there. Uh, there's going to be an interesting search for a head coach. Will they promote Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator? Will they go outside and look for a big name like a Bill Belichick who seems like he'll be available? Who will want to come work for uh, the, the Washington Commanders 
given their their history of dysfunction, it'll be really interesting to see if the commanders can make some of those crucial decisions and make the right ones, particularly who will be the head coach and will they go forward with Sam Howell, who's done some good things this year, but also turned the ball over a ton. That'll be interesting. All right, on the more positive side, three up. Who are the three teams that, that are really playing some good football right now? Well, let's start with the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, the Ravens are rolling right now. They've won four in a row. They've got a point differential of plus 159, which is the best in the AFC. Uh, Lamar Jackson's playing maybe the best football of his career, certainly his best since he won the MVP award in 2019. The pairing of Jackson and Todd Munkin, the offensive coordinator that they brought in from the two-time national champion Georgia Bulldogs in the offseason to sort of reshape Jackson's game, has worked splendidly. Jackson's been really efficient. His accuracy's improved as Munkin has emphasized a little bit more of a quick passing game. The big change that the Ravens have made is that they've spread the field and it's worked wonders. Under previous offensive coordinator Greg Roman, the Ravens were a really heavy personnel team. They they based out of big personnel, 12, 21, 22 sets, right? 12 sets is one back and two tight ends. 21 is two backs and a, and a, and a one tight end, that second back predominantly being a fullback. And 22 is two backs and two tight ends, big personnel. And they wanted to slam the ball at you. And, and they tried to use the play action off that in a vertical passing game. This year, they're they're basing out of 11 personnel. Their 11 personnel frequency in 2022 was 12%. They ran 12% of their plays out of 11. This year, they're, they're up to almost 50% of their plays out of 11 personnel. What's 11 personnel? Three wide receivers on the field and just one tight end and one running back. And Baltimore can do that this year because they're just better at the receiver position. The additions of... Odell Beckham and Zay Flowers, players like that, have really allowed them to put more receivers on the field. And by spreading the field, they've really opened up the box for Jackson, and he's really seeing the field much better with less clutter in his face. So that move has worked wonders for the Ravens. I think the Ravens are the favorite in the AFC to get to the Super Bowl, and we're going to see a fascinating maybe Super Bowl preview on Monday night when Baltimore goes to San Francisco. We're absolutely going to talk about that game on next week's call sheet. A second team that's up playing well, the Tampa Bay Bucks, winners of three in a row and now tied with the New Orleans Saints in first place in the NFC South. They actually hold the tiebreaker. So if the season ended today, the Bucks would be in. They they had their best game of the year last weekend with a 34-20 win over the Packers in Lambeau Field. It's only their second win at Lambeau in 16 tries in franchise history. Baker Mayfield was lights out in that game, uh, posting a perfect 158.3 passer rating. Side note, how the hell is 158.3 a perfect anything? I'll, I'll never understand that. But it is. It is what it is, right? And Baker was perfect in that game. Uh, I mean, we're really, the, the Bucks are getting hot at the right time. I mean, it's not just Baker Mayfield. They're getting the run game together. They're averaging 125 rushing yards per game. That's not lights out, but that's 35 yards better than last year where they, where they were pretty pitiful on the ground, averaging just 90 yards a game. So you give Baker Mayfield a decent rushing attack and, and now he's getting hot at the right time. And the Bucks are in line. I mean, they control their own destiny to win their third straight NFC South championship. All right, so let's end this segment with our last team, 
The Indianapolis Colts, winners of five out of their last six games, another team that have played themselves from seeming oblivion into the thick of the playoff race. If the playoffs started today, the Colts would be in, in the AFC. It, it certainly didn't look like that. If you go back two months when they lost Anthony Richardson, Jonathan Taylor was holding out, then Taylor came back, then they lost Taylor again to an injury. And it really just seemed like it would be a, you know, let's build for next year kind of season for the Colts as new head coach Shane Steichen kind of figured out what he had in Indianapolis. But he's getting solid play from Gardner Minshew. And I really have to say, watching the Colts dismantle the Steelers last Saturday night, I was so impressed with Steichen's play calling. He uh, he really utilized the RPO, the run-past option, to perfection against the Steelers. And he's running a modern NFL offense. I think as much as any team in the league, when you look at what Indy does on offense, it's football in 2023. When you look at what the Steelers are doing on offense, it's football in like 1986. The difference was stark between those two teams. Steichen came over to the Colts from Philly. He'd been in Philly for a while where, where he first learned the RPO game under Doug Peterson, who was probably the first head coach to really use it significantly at the NFL level when, when he led the Eagles to the Super Bowl back in 2017. And so Steichen has kind of put his own tweaks on it, and he's using it really effectively in Indianapolis. So what we're going to do now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to take a deep dive on the RPO. What is an RPO? First of all, what, what, what's it mean? What does it entail? Uh, what are the different varieties of it? Who are some of the teams that use it the best? And why is it so hard to defend? So let's jump in on all those subjects on the other side. Come on back. Kevin Smith back with you on the call sheet. In part one of the show, we looked at the number 36 worn by Jerome Bettis of the Pittsburgh Steelers and some of the risers and fallers, three up and three down teams in the NFL that are ascending and descending as we head into the final three weeks of the season. One of those teams, the Indianapolis Colts, is coming off a 30-13 to 13 victory over the Pittsburgh Steelers in which Indianapolis displayed a really efficient offense and really had the Steelers off balance with their run pass mix. And in particular with their RPO game. So we're going to spend some time in the second half of the show here talking about the RPO Uh, in an earlier episode of the call sheet that I did. I'm going to say maybe a couple months back, I did a little bit of the history of the RPO, how the RPO differs from the run option so I won't, I won't get into that here, but I will quickly remind people really where it came from and what it means. So so very, very briefly, the RPO emanated up from the college level. It's generally credited uh, as originating from Rich Rodriguez's offenses at West Virginia. Hal Mummy at Kentucky had, had a hand in this. Uh, hard, to, hard to pinpoint exactly where a thing comes from. Lots of people were running variations of it in the early 2000s but it made its way to the NFL primarily with Chip Kelly and his offenses in Philadelphia 
Doug Peterson, when he replaced Chip Kelly there, carried that forward. The Eagles were really the first team to use RPOs extensively. And Shane Steichen, the new head coach in Indianapolis, came from that coaching tree. In 2022, when Steichen was Philadelphia's offensive coordinator, he ran 251 RPO plays with the Eagles, which is about 20% of their total offense. That was the third highest frequency in the NFL. And Steichen now has taken some of that approach to his offense in Indianapolis. So we're going to look a little bit at what the Colts are doing with the RPO, and uh, but more so at the RPO in general. All right, so before we really dive into that, let's talk about what the RPO is not, because there's a lot of misconceptions about the run-pass option. First and foremost, it is not a play-action pass. The RPO is not a designed pass. It is, as the name suggests, a, a run-pass option. The quarterback has the option to either run the football or throw the football. And that run element is primarily uh, occupied by a running back. There aren't that many RPOs where the quarterback is the runner. So in that sense, it's different from the run option. The run option, the quarterback, is reading an unblocked defender and deciding whether or not he's going to hand the ball to the running back or pull it and run and run it himself. In the RPO, the quarterback is reading a conflict defender and deciding whether he's going to give the ball to the running back or pull it out and throw it to a specified receiver. Now, there are a couple RPO schemes where the quarterback is the runner, like stick draw. But for the most part, again, the quarterback is handing it off or throwing the football. So again, not a play action pass. It is not a predetermined pass. The quarterback generally makes a determination either at the line of scrimmage or, or post-snap in the first second or so as the defense begins to react to the run action shown up front. Here's, a, here's another misconception. You don't need a running quarterback to execute RPOs. Again, because the quarterback is not running the ball primarily, you don't need an athletic quarterback to execute them. What you do need is a quarterback who can make quick decisions and get the ball out quickly. But he doesn't need to be super athletic, and you're not going to put him at risk necessarily by having him run the ball into the teeth of the defense. And lastly, as I just mentioned, it's not a read option. The read option is a run-run option. The RPO is a run-pass option. So, so again, the quarterback is not pulling the ball and running it himself. Okay, so that's what it's not. All right, so what, what is it then exactly? It is, as I just mentioned, it's an it's a it's a combination play where you really have you've got two two play concepts, sometimes even three play concepts built into one, and the quarterback's going to make a decision uh, at the line of scrimmage or post snap as to which option he's choosing. So there there's really two kinds again of RPOs. The pre snap RPO is generally one that involves counting numbers. So, for example, the quarterback will come to the line of scrimmage and there will be a run play call. Oftentimes it's a zone run. So let's say it's an inside zone concept. And on the play, one of the defenders in the box is going to be left unblocked. So let's, so if it's zone right, the backside tackle, the left tackle, rather than climb up to the linebacker, he'll block out on the end. And the quarterback will read that linebacker 
And if that linebacker moves a certain way, he'll make a decision whether or not to hand the ball off uh, or or throw, pull the ball and throw it. But I'm actually getting ahead of myself. I mean, that has, that's a little bit more of the, of the post-snap variation. But to talk about the pre-snap variation, again, it's a numbers game. So, right, so you have an inside run called. It could, be, it could be zone. It could be power. It could be counter. It could be whatever. But you also have a perimeter uh, pass concept called. Maybe it's a bubble screen to your receivers out there. And what the quarterback's doing on the pre-snap RPO is he's just counting the numbers. If there are more guys in the box than the offense can block, then, then you're going to throw the ball out to the perimeter, right? So let's say, let's say the defense has a, a, a linebacker who's cheated into the box that gives the defense seven defenders in the box area, and there's only six blockers to block them, and the the defense is playing with two high safeties. Well, that probably means they don't have enough guys on the perimeter to defend the perimeter screen. So the quarterback's going to look out there. If he's only got one on the perimeter uh, and two receivers out there, then he'll throw the bubble screen or the perimeter screen. If if it's six on six in the box and they got two on two outside, all the numbers are equal, then he's going to run the ball because you got enough blockers to cover up the defenders. So again, that's just a math problem, right? Quarterback walks up to the line of scrimmage. Do we got enough guys in the box to block the run? Yes, we do. All right, fine. I'm going to run the ball. No, we don't. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip the ball out there to the perimeter because unless the defense is in cover zero, then we can throw that perimeter screen. Now, if the defense is in cover zero, there's, there's different types of RPOs you can run to take advantage of that. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but you know you can net, then get into just vertical stretch concepts, one-on-ones. I'm going to run a nine route on the perimeter and if they're in, in zero, I'm going to throw it, right? I'm, I'm going to pull the ball, I'm not going to hand it off, and I'm going to throw that one-on-one, and we're going to bet that we can beat that, that coverage with no safety help. So again, that, those, are, those are pre-snap RPOs where you're counting the numbers. Then there are the post-snap RPOs, and that's, that was what I was alluding to earlier when I, I got ahead of myself there. Uh, let's go back to that scenario. The offense is running inside zone. The, the backside tackle is blocking out on the end. The backside linebacker is being left unblocked. Why are, they, why are they leaving that backside linebacker unblocked? Because the quarterback's going to account for him by reading his movement. If that backside linebacker is aggressive in pursuing the run action, the quarterback's going to pull the ball, and the offense is going to have a route sliding in behind where that linebacker was. So maybe it's sort of a, a slow slant from the slot, Maybe it's some sort of stick route from the tight end, but they're essentially trying to use the movement of that linebacker against him. If, if he's aggressive against the run, some sort of route will be replacing him and, and, and occupying the void that the backer has created with his movement. Now, if that backer is a slow reader, let's say he kind of sits inside and, and the quarterback doesn't think that he's going to be able to get across the ball to play the run, he'll hand it off. A lot of times you see stretch concepts on post-snap RPOs because you want to create as much ground as possible that that backside backer has to cover in order to get to the ball if he is chasing, right? So you'll see like an outside zone run or a wide zone run to one side of the field with the, with the backside backer being red. And now he's got to make a quick decision. Is he going to aggressively chase the wide zone action or, or is he going to more patiently pursue the play. Either way, the quarterback's going to try to make him wrong 
by reading his movement and either giving the ball or throwing it based on what the backer does. So you can read you can read backers, you can read alley players in a in a post snap RPO, meaning maybe you want to conflict the overhang player, the, that that guy uh, out over the slot who is trying to sort of cheat into the box, but also play the perimeter. You, you're he's trying to hang out there far enough to discourage you from throwing a bubble screen. So maybe you're not throwing a bubble screen, right? Maybe instead you're throwing like a snag concept where you got two receivers out on the perimeter and the outside receiver is running a vertical route, probably a corner route. He's going to release vertically. And now that, that alley player's got a conflict. He has to decide if he wants to try to carry the vertical route or if he wants to let it go and cheat inside to play the run. And meanwhile, you've got an outside receiver who's going to come in on some sort of stick concept and just settle down where the alley player was aligned. So if the alley player carries the the vertical or reacts too quickly to the run, you can throw the stick in there. If the alley player sort of sits in the void, you're just going to hand the ball off, right? So, So there's lots of different ways to manipulate these second-level defenders, whether they're linebackers, alley players. Some teams are even getting into third-level reads where they're reading the safety. And if the safety uh, in, you know, uh, has some kind of late post-snap rotation where he jumps down into the box uh, just before the snap, or if he's super aggressive coming up against the run action, they're going to throw skinny post out over his head. All right, now all this stuff works because the NFL has re- relaxed its rules on linemen down the field. So if you go back to 2012, a really integral rules change was made in the NFL where they decided that the zone in which linemen can be downfield when the football is thrown will, would increase from one to three yards. So prior to 2012, linemen only had about a a one-yard window where they could be down the field before the football was thrown. But after 2012, they allowed that zone to increase to three yards. And immediately you saw RPOs come in. Chip Kelly comes to the Eagles in 2013 and he brings those RPOs with him because he understands that that window will allow them to now be thrown in the NFL. Today, that window sometimes is as big as four and five yards. I mean, you, you sometimes see offensive linemen four and five yards down the field uh, as the quarterback's pulling the ball out and throwing it. It's just another way uh, that playing defense in the NFL has become increasingly difficult. So the RPO, what again, it borrows from the old option scheme. If you go way back to the 1970s and the wishbone, this is, this is what wishbone teams were doing. They were, they were putting a defender in conflict. In the, in the wishbone offense and then in the, in the read option game that replaced it when spread offenses hit the scene in the early 2000s, you were reading an unblocked defensive lineman, putting that defensive lineman in conflict, trying to make him wrong, whatever he did. In the RPO game, those, those reads, those, those conflict defenders are now at the second and third levels and, and are, are obviously folding the passing game in. Uh, so what's that brings us back to the Colts, right? And we started this conversation with the Colts. And as I watched them against the Steelers on Saturday night, uh, you know, I was really attracted to a lot of what Shane Steichen was doing early in the game. He did a great job of using second level RPOs to slow down the Steelers safeties. 
uh, Indianapolis tried to establish their run game early. Pittsburgh safeties were getting aggressive and the Colts started running a lot of glance and glance is that that third level RPO where the quarterback is reading the safety. And if the safety is, is aggressive and filling against the run, he's pulling the ball out and throwing skinny post. And the Colts were really good. It's not like a, it's not like a home run post. It's not where uh, you're trying to throw the ball 30 yards down the field. That just takes too long to develop. And you're going to get flagged for those. It's almost more like a curl where the, the outside receiver is working over top of the alley player and if that safety is aggressive, he's just looking to fill the void where the safety should have been. And the Colts hit that consistently for some 14 to 15, 18-yard gains. And soon enough, it sort of backed off Pittsburgh's safeties. Then the Colts went to some of their second-level RPOs, running RPOs off of play action to the back on the stretch concepts, moving Pittsburgh's linebackers with the run action, and then throwing – little crossing routes or, or stick routes, little seam routes to their tight ends and their receivers crossing the field. And that really helped manipulate Pittsburgh's linebackers. So by the time you got to like late in the third quarter, the Steelers interior second and third level defenders, the backers and the safeties, they didn't have a, they didn't have a clue what to do. They didn't know, man, how aggressive can I be? Do I got to sit back? And they started to sit back and then Indianapolis just pounded Pittsburgh with the run. When the Colts were ahead 27-13, they got the ball back deep in their own territory early in the fourth quarter, and they embarked on a seven-minute drive it, uh, that ended with a field goal. And at one point in that drive, I think it was a 16-play drive altogether, but for the first 13 plays of that drive, they ran the football, 13 straight run plays, in, in which they basically just ran the ball right, right at the Steelers. And Pittsburgh's linebackers were playing loose because they were worried about the RPO. The safeties weren't filling very fast. I mean, at one, at one, one play, Indianapolis had third and four, and they just ran straight inside zone with an RPO built into the uh, perimeter, and they, and they hit it for like six yards, knocked Pittsburgh off the ball. The Steelers really were baffled as to how to defend that. And so really, man, that's what, that's what the RPO can allow teams to do. If you have a quarterback, who makes quick decisions and has a quick release doesn't have to be a great athlete, but has to be smart uh, and, and, and quick at the line of scrimmage. If you got a running back and an offensive line that can show some patience, an offensive line willing to stay on their double teams for a while. So they don't get to the second level too fast, a running back. That's not too eager and trying to snatch the ball out of the quarterback's hands as the quarterback goes through his second level read then you can run that stuff. And Indianapolis, I think, is going to be devastating on offense when they get the full complement of their players back. I mean, we're probably now talking a year from now, but when you get Anthony Richardson, a six foot four, 245-pound quarterback, paired with Jonathan Taylor, the workhorse in the backfield, and, and you now can mix in reg, traditional read options where the quarterback is a run threat with RPOs where the quarterback is now pulling the ball out and throwing it behind defenders if they're if they're too aggressive. I mean, you really can slow down a defense. I think Indianapolis, with Steichen's background and his familiarity with the RPO game in general and the talent that they're going to have on offense, especially with the young legs in the backfield that they'll have, are they're going to be really hard to defend. So so it won't shock me at all if Indianapolis is a team 
in the 2024 season that sports one of the better offenses in the NFL. And it'll be because they've got good young talent, but it'll also be because they've got a great head coach who understands modern offense and does an excellent job implementing the RPO scheme. All right. So I hope we learned maybe a little bit there. Uh, and, you know, again, you want to impress your friends and, and family, right? You know, next time you see the quarterback with a long ride on the running back and then pull the ball out and throw it to the second level on a slant uh, that because the linebacker went flying out there and pursuing the run, say, oh, man, that was a nice second level RPO, right? You will be the most popular person at the football party. That's probably not true, but I, I like to think that way because what the heck? <laughs> I got to put I got to put this use to this football knowledge to some use. Uh, so I might as well try to uh, show off at parties. I don't know. Anyway, episode 36 of the call sheet. The NFL season is winding down. We're about to get to the most exciting part, the playoffs. There's three weeks left. A lot can change and we're here for all of it. So I hope you'll join me again next week for episode 37. In between, have an awesome holiday season. Uh, Christmas is coming. Whatever your holiday celebration is, it's a great time to be with friends, family, and football. And so make the most of it. Hope it's peaceful for everybody. And we'll catch you here again next week. Take care, everybody.